0: I don't know about you, but in the world that I live in, the idea of sin doesn't fare too well, except on dessert menus. There's a lot of sin here, all right, isn't there? I mean, strawberry seduction, wonderfully wicked waffles, sweet indulgence. In fact, there's even a whole chain of restaurants operating under the name Sweet Temptations. And I discovered, shows you what my internet browsing is like, um, I, I discovered um, a chain of restaurants, um, a de- dessert supplier really called, wait for it, the Greedy Pig Food Company. And in fact, there's a whole clutch of these, and if you just go home and search under sinful desserts, well, you'll have a wonderful time. One of these advertises itself uh, by saying this, and I quote, "This is the place," and here it is, <laughs> where decadence meets elegance. It sounds like what like graceful gluttony, or, or maybe tasteful torture, or or uh, I don't know, discerning depravity. Another one plies its wares by saying and announcing, I- "I'm tempted with this." Sometimes you just have to spoil yourself with a deliciously sinful treat. If a visitor came from Mars. That would think sin was measured in calories on earth. Now what's just vaguely troubling about this, I think, is that nowadays, as, as one writer, Neil Plantinga, puts it, peanut butter binge and chocolate challenge are sinful. Lying isn't. It's a far cry from the old-style preachers, isn't it, who used to lash their hearers with charges of pride and envy and lust and greed... You weren't in much doubt what, they, what those firebrands thought, thought about sin. But it's different today. As a culture, I think we've become inarticulate about sin. We mumble about it, we stammer over it, we mostly couch it in nice words. We talk about becoming more human or, or targeting love as a growth need or, or achieving wholeness or finding integration or some such. What a contrast that is to the 18th century hymn writer William Cowper Sin is still hammering my heart unto a hardness void of love Let suppling grace to cross his art drop from above Sin is still hammering my heart unto a hardness void of love Let suppling grace to cross his art. Drop from above. Wow. You could spend a whole sermon reflecting on that. What's it saying? Sin is like a blacksmith. Maybe an iron worker. Hammering our hearts into hardness. But but note that the outcome isn't just evil or, or wickedness. It's something else. It's a heart void of love. A hardened lovelessness, a steeliness from which all softness and tenderness has been hammered out, pounded into oblivion. A heart void of love. What does it need? There's a lovely phrase, suppling grace. What's that? We need grace to make that heart, not hard, but supple. To make it pliable, to make it malleable, we need grace that will erode away that rigidity, that loveless rigidity, uh, that, that, that leeches out that inflexibility in us. Grace of that kind crosses his art, cuts across, counteracts, reverses the craft that sin is exercising upon us. Well, you see what I mean. Compared with that, we really are inarticulate about sin. But hey, don't worry. That's not my theme this morning. I'm not going to turn the clock back and start listing Fitzroy sins like those old preachers in the past. And I'll tell you why. In 1926, there was a minister in Texas. Frank Norris was his name. And he advertised a series of, I think it was, summer sermons under this title. The Ten Biggest Devils in Fort Worth. Names given. The local city mayor was one of his targets. The mayor, Norris told his congregation, and I quote, isn't fit to be the manager of a hug pen. Shortly afterwards, one of the mayor's friends turned up to Norris's study. They had a bit of an altercation, and Norris shot him dead. So, I'm not going there this morning. Really, it's far too dangerous an occupation. But it's something in the neighborhood that I am after. You see, if indeed we become inarticulate about sin, we have become inarticulate about something else. Temptation. You see, when we go soft on sin, the whole idea of temptation just evaporates into thin air. We don't struggle with it. We don't resist it. We don't run from it. Instead, I think we're inclined to to fool around with it and and to flirt with it. We don't resist it. We're much more like Oscar Wilde who once said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And you see, when we do that, that leaves us tone deaf to the dangers of sin. We get blase about it. We get anaesthetized to it. And then that means that we're anaesthetized to virtue at the same time. Think about these words purity, piety, holiness and wholesomeness, meekness and modesty. Admit it, they're not cool. They're not hip. They're not stylish. They're not chic. Describe a young woman as wholesome or a guy as modest, and you're going to think they're old fogeyish. They're fusty, shop soiled. Those words don't send the pulse racing, do they? Now tell me, which of us is going to queue up for the new movie that's called The Seven Deadly Virtues? Neil Plantinga puts it like this What's devastating about all this? is that when we lack an ear for wrong notes in our lives, we can't play the right ones. Nor can we even hear them in the performances of others. Soon enough, the idea that the human race needs a saviour, it suddenly becomes, well, quaint. And believe me, that's far more dangerous to the church then all the spite from Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Dan Dennett wrapped all together. Now the problem with not t- treating temptation too seriously, I think, is that temptation lies at the very heart of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And it features as a critical episode in the life of Jesus as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Sue read for us one of those accounts just a minute or two ago, and I'm going to return to it in a short period of time. But I want to have a few thoughts about temptation more generally first, and think about it on a personal level. I think that on a personal level, temptation comes to us in many forms. I mean, it can attack us right up front, of course. But much more common, I think, is that Temptation comes on us with great subtlety. It has that extraordinary ability to ambush us unawares. For this reason, I think temptation usually presents itself in a pretty good light. Jealousy masquerades as high-minded righteousness. We never think we're jealous. We're just inclined to sneer at the person who is something that we'd love to have. And then we say, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid they're, they're being seduced by, by materialism. It goes on and on. Lust poses as love. Sadism pretends to be good old-fashioned discipline. Prejudice, and we know that surely in this country, presents itself as Loyalty. You see, temptation masks itself. It hides its true colors. It creeps in silently, unobtrusively. Then it spirals out of control and corrupts everything. T.S. Eliot gets it right. The last temptation is the greatest temptation of all. It's the greatest treason, he says. And it's this, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. To do the right thing for the wrong reason. Think about it. Somebody gives generously to a charity so that they'll get their name on the board of trustees. Somebody supports a worthy cause to get the adulation of the public. Somebody helps a struggling colleague at work to keep them in their debt. For T.S. Eliot, these are truly acts of treachery. Now, I think it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul presents what I think of as one of the greatest analysis of the human condition, of the human self, when he talks about that inner struggle that the serious Christian faces every day. Recall what he says in Romans, for what I do is not what I want to do, it's not the good I want to do, the evil that I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep on doing. I think it was the great Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt who considered this passage in the Apostle Paul to mark him out as one of the great original philosophers of the human will. You see, Paul is is bearing witness here to the remarkable complexity of the human being, of 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 the human psyche, of you and me. And he's looking at the urges that drive us. He puts his finger on the pulse of one of our very greatest weaknesses. Our capacity to equivocate. Our inclination to be pulled in two directions at once. Our spiritually split personalities. Our good intentions to follow in one path, but our willful aptitude to succumb to temptation at the very same time. He's putting his finger on our flirtatious romance daily, with temptation, As I was thinking about this, I, I, I recalled a, a poem that I read years ago by, by a Christian poet called um, Steve Turner. It's a, it's a satirical poem, but I think here that he exposes, I hope you agree, the utterly destructive power of temptation and its capacity to wreak a massive spiritual devastation and, I think, psychological destruction in our, in our lives. Lead me into temptation, just one more time. Lead me up close through circumstances beyond my control. Lead me, then leave me. Deliver me from escape. Increase my ignorance. Limit my will. Make me the victim of a victimless crime. Leave me till sin is the only way out. Give me a taste of what to avoid. Leave me till it's, till it's your fault. Yet guilt floods me like a chill. Then lead me back into temptation. Just one more time. Does not catch something of your capacity and mine for self deception, for fudging, for prevaricating, for wavering? How often I and I think you have been tempted. We have succumbed to the allure of temptation and then we spend ages justifying ourselves. And you know, that's only on the occasions when we're awake enough to recognize that we've fallen into its clutches. More often than not, I think we don't even notice that we have allowed self-serving attitudes or impatient prejudice or high-minded bossiness to govern our behavior. We ride roughshod over other people and then self-justification just swings so so automatically into action that we don't even realize it. We don't practice the art of esteeming others better than ourselves because, well, we never feel the need to. Now, if nothing else, I think Steve Turner's poem and and the Apostle Paul's uh, warning here, surely at least this tells us that we've got to be awake to the dangers of temptation, to look for its trickery, to try to discern its wily ways, to find out its cunning devices, constant vigilance. Otherwise, we'll miss the ways in which we could use a friendship to climb up the social ladder. All the possibilities for being ensnared are limitless, I think. We see them every day. A journalist who has become desensitized to temptation twists the truth to get her story onto the front page. A head of state with a deadened conscience launches a mini-war to mask his failures at home. A church member with a diminished sense of sin uses a friend's gratitude to exercise control over them. We've got to be awake to temptation on a personal level. But what about the temptations of Christ? We read that passage this morning, Sue did, and I wonder what's going on here. Now I think here, we're presented with something that's quite different. And I want to take a minute or two to work through these with you. Now, the general story here is pretty well known. We'll follow Luke's ordering of the events. So you'll recall it. Here, Satan is pictured as approaching Jesus in the wilderness with three temptations, three, three challenges, I suppose, or, or, or three, three enticements. Well, let's think about them. First, the devil invites Jesus to turn stones into bread. Now, on the face of it, it's pretty hard to see what could be at stake here. Uh, but whatever it is, Jesus is pretty firm in his dismissal of it. Secondly, Jesus is taken to a mountaintop and he's offered all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, now, so far, it's still not immediately clear what's going on, except, of course, for the price that Satan puts on the deal, falling down and worshipping him. We can see the problem there. But at any rate, whatever it is, Jesus firmly stamps on it. And then there's finally, there's the challenge for Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, I guess we're supposed to think that it was pretty high. Um, But assured anyway that the angels would come and rescue him. Now, again, it's not immediately apparent what's so profoundly tempting about this. But Jesus turns his back on it with unmistakable resolution. Now, whatever's going on in these temptations, honestly, they're not the kind of temptation that I routinely have to deal with myself. I mean, honestly, I never get tempted to turn stones into bread. I mean, do you, do you really? Do you wake up at night and think, "I better go and turn some pebbles into pizza, M- maybe, maybe, maybe convert stones into scones, uh, you know, do a kind of I don't know like ast- uh, gastronomical alchemy of some sort." I mean, I, I don't know. No, no, that's not one of my temptations at all. Um, as for controlling all the kingdoms of the earth, now, sure, I sometimes think. Things would be a lot better if I ruled the world. Don't you agree? Probably not. Probably not. But, but honestly, that's not a really hard temptation for me to resist. I can tell you that managing a group of colleagues for a few years got the world ruler complex out of me pretty quickly. Now, as for pitching myself off the top of the Europa Hotel, convinced that a posse of angels will swoop like Superman into action to save me, Really, that's not at the top of my list of ten sweet temptations. Nowhere near it, really. So what is going on here? I think we've got to see these as a very particular kind of temptation, something unique, something special. They are specifically Messiah's temptations. They are Christ's temptations. They are messianic temptations. They're to do with the kind of Messiah that Jesus knows that he truly is. But the temptation to settle for something less. The temptation to settle for something else. The temptation is set to settle for something that's fundamentally easier. Now to get on track here, we have to work in tandem with those short Old Testament sections that Sue read to us earlier this morning. I'm sure you were wondering, what are they doing there? So it's this first passage in Deuteronomy, you'll recall it. Now Moses is speaking, and he declares that the Lord would someday raise up a prophet like himself, a prophet like unto me, a prophet like Moses would be raised up at some point looking towards the future. For the ancient Israelites, this became an image of what the Messiah would really be like. When the Messiah would eventually come, he'd be another Moses. Now Moses, of course, was the one who gave the children of Israel manna in the wilderness. He delivered them daily sustenance whenever they were in dire distress. He was, for them, a social provider. And that became a dominating vision of what the coming Messiah would do for his people. He would miraculously provide bread for them and care for their daily lives. That was what Messiah's reign would be all about, they believed. But we see here that Jesus emphatically turns his back on being that kind of Messiah. Now, of course, let's be clear. Jesus did supply the crowds with nourishment whenever they needed it. He did provide for them. But for some reason, that was not to be the sum and substance of the kind of Messiah he was to be. That was his first temptation, to settle for just being another Moses. Now, the couple of verses from Isaiah that was read introduce another expectation of what the Messiah would be like. Listen again. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. Now here's a vision of the Messiah as a political leader. One who'd bring together the remnant of Israel from all the nations. He'd be a global ruler, exerting God's power for the benefit of his own people. Now this is a vision of a political Messiah finally vindicating Israel and bringing all the nations into subjection to Jehovah. But when Jesus here is offered the nations of the earth, He sees that this is a temptation to settle for an earthly kingdom, to settle for a this-worldly empire governed by political power and military might and probably international aspiration. And again, Jesus turns his back on this long-established expectation of what Messiah's reign would be. He's not going to be that kind of Messiah. Now, the Malachi passage introduces a third vision of Messiah's coming. Here the expectation is that Messiah will be Elijah, or at least an Elijah-like figure. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day. Now we know that Elijah was a charismatic miracle worker. I'm sure you remember the dramatic narrative when he mocks Baal and his prophets on Mount Carmel, and calls down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. An awesome show of divine power. A stunning demonstration of spiritual pyrotechnics. And some in ancient Israel were sure that the same kind of sensational miracle working would be what the coming Messiah would be all about. Wasn't that what the third temptation was about? The challenge is for Jesus to put on a display of divine fireworks by throwing himself spectacularly off the pinnacle of the temple and seeing the angelic host swing into action. But, but no. Again, that's not what Jesus has in mind. Now, to be sure, Jesus was and is a miracle worker. But to restrict his mission to that was profoundly misguided. So why were these temptations? Why were they then temptations? As I say, Jesus was a provider of bread. He is the one before whom every nation must bow. And he was a miracle worker. Why were they temptations? Because Satan held out to him the possibility of being Messiah without the cross. The possibility of being Messiah without the cross. That would have been being a Messiah without being a suffering servant. Without the pain and agony of rejection. Without the gospel of grace. Without salvation. Satan held out a this-worldly Messiah. Not a Messiah whose kingdom is from another world. It was offering Jesus Messiahship without rejection. He was offering him Messiahship by acclaim not by denunciation he was offering a messiahship through power not through weakness he was offering a messiahship by popularity not by denial by applause not by sacrifice but that wasn't what god intended for at the heart of true messiahship is something entirely different it's a man of sorrows Acquainted with grief. Despised, afflicted, wounded, broken, betrayed. That's the way of the cross. And that's the way that Jesus chose. Messiahs are supposed to be high-born heroic warriors, somebody wrote. Not this one. This one's born in a stable. He rejects the weapons of destruction. He's the friend of outcasts and pariahs. He enters the capital riding on a donkey. He ends his life crucified like a common criminal. Well, I'm nearly done. We could end here, couldn't we? And we could just meditate for a little while on that amazing path that Jesus chose. Going against all expectation, he stunningly reveals that the Messiah is one, as the Apostle Paul puts it, who humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. But I do have one final thought, and it's this. The temptations of Jesus were his temptations, for sure, in a way that they're not for you and me. But I have a feeling that these same temptations are the church's temptations as well. What do I mean? Well, this I think today we're often tempted to settle for one of these false messiahs. Many are attracted these days to a Jesus who is nothing but a social provider. The one who provides the poor with bread. The one who engages in never-ending acts of charity. There are others who are very happy with a political Jesus who's engaged in a project to bring all society under God's kingly authority whether it's local community change or the transformation of society. That's what they believe the Christian Church is all about. And finally, there are many who are allured by the idea of Christ as a miracle worker. They love the excitement and the drama of unleashed supernatural power. They are irresistibly drawn to the idea of a Christ who engages in spiritual melodrama. Now, Honestly, I'm attracted to some of these visions myself. And there's a lot to them. I just have a sneaking feeling that they can be a substitute. Maybe a respectable substitute. Maybe even an attractive substitute. Maybe even a sensational substitute. For a Messiah who's concerned about sin and holiness. About repentance and atonement. About self-sacrifice and salvation. And I just have a feeling that if we succumb to the temptation to follow those Messiahs. We could well end up substituting activism for holiness. Substituting a love of the marvelous for humble obedience. I wonder, could we be exchanging crusading zeal for diligence and prayer? Could we be substituting political exploits for deep-down personal devotion? Maybe I'm wrong. It's just a suspicion that I entertain from time to time. But surely it wouldn't do us any harm from time to time to remind ourselves that we follow what someone has called an undesirable Jesus. Not an award winning charity worker, not a global politician, not a dazzling magician. We are followers of one who, according to the Apostle Paul, was of no reputation, one who took upon himself the form of a servant. We follow one who, according to Isaiah, had no beauty or majesty in him to attract us to him. One who had, the prophet says, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, undesirable. One who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's the kind of Messiah I think Jesus is. And to settle for any other is to miss the only one, I think, who is truly able to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Surely that's exactly what we here in Fitzroy desperately need, not least this week.